welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Firstly, I, I just want to bring an apology that I wasn't with you at the beginning of the meeting this morning. Um, I don't know how Sundays go in your household. Well, in fact, I don't know how many days of the weeks go in your household. But I must admit, you know, when you talk to people, it's surprising how many people find that Sunday mornings are more of a battle than any other day of the week. And you think about it and you think, why? We don't need to be out of the house as early. We haven't got to get to work. We could have a lie-in and still make it. Yet, somehow, there is a battle that goes on on a Sunday morning. And actually, that battle isn't one that goes on on the earth. It's one that goes on on in the heavens as well. This morning for me, it was having got here and set up and thinking, oh, ten minutes to spare. I realised I'd left my notes on the printer and uh, that wasn't going to be very helpful. Um, I'm sure I could have come up with something, but I felt my time was better invested in going and retrieving them. Now, it's funny, we're not the only people or the only generation that has found this battle. This battle has been going on for thousands upon thousands of years. And we can read about it in the book of Nehemiah. The reason is, we are here building the house of God, building the church. And in the, day, in the days of Nehemiah, they were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And they found themselves under attack as well. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I hadn't been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will the journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. 
so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I hadn't told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials didn't know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews, or the priests, or the nobles, or the officials, or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burnt with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. We've looked over previous weeks at how Nehemiah's life was suddenly changed. He heard about what was going on in Jerusalem and the state the walls were in and his whole life and passion was turned around. And as Malcolm spoke the other week, his passion became to see the city of God restored. So his life was changed. His whole routine 
was transformed by what he heard and what he felt. And in that moment, he became a man of destiny. A church leader once went to one of our leadership conferences and he'd been developing a fairly new church in a traditional way. And as he was at the conference, he heard, in a way he hadn't heard it before, about God's purpose to restore the church. He hadn't really thought about it. But as he heard that teaching on restoration and its role at the end of days, he, he was changed. And he said, I'm ruined. I can't now settle for anything less. And if your view of church is as some people's is, that we will be a small diminishing remnant that will bravely hang on and cling until Jesus returns again, then you need to read the Bible because that isn't what is promised. The church's destiny is foretold in the Old Testament. We can look in Isaiah 9 where we read, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Nehemiah became gripped by a vision. His burden to see Zion, to see Jerusalem restored. Her walls standing up straight, her gates strong, and the purposes of God established. But fulfilling that vision involved a battle. There were some enemies. And actually, they were quite powerful enemies in that day. And they were in opposition to Nehemiah. You read in chapter 2 verse 10 that when Sambalat and Tobiah heard about it, it says, It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. And as you look through the book further, you'll find that concern and displeasure quite quickly develops into something else. As you go further through the book, by the time you get to chapter 4, it's turned into something much, much deeper. It's turned into fury and anger. It says in verse 1 of chapter 4, When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? How can they bring stones back to life from the heaps of rubble burnt like they are? We have 
an enemy. And ours is a spiritual one. But actually, he is every bit as angry and incensed when he sees the church being restored as Sambala and Tobiah were when they looked upon Jerusalem. He is happy to see the church in disarray. He's happy to see it lacking in faith and lacking a sense of destiny. When he sees the church beginning to take on fresh impetus, when he sees Christians arise like Nehemiah proposing to rebuild, it brings trembling and fear to him. And that turns to angry and fury. That is what goes on in our enemy's camp. And because of that, it provokes conflict. Restoring the church is not an easy job. As a family of churches, sometimes bruised and battered, we've already come through many crises as that spiritual battle has raged. We're not the only ones, but you can look back at times and see that. In the early days, in the 1960s, in the charismatic revival, the house church movement, as people tended to call it at the time, was often rejected and criticised by other church groups. If we move on in the 1990s, the move of God that became nicknamed the Toronto Blessing brought further dispute and ridicule. When we were in Bedford, one of the other New Frontiers churches, sorry, there's four New Frontiers churches in Bedford, but one of the others actually became targeted in that period by the local press. And they put headlines out saying things like, Alpha Course sends people barking mad. And saying that people were being encouraged to bark like dogs on Alpha. They didn't quite have their facts right. But whenever the church takes a step forward, it is met with opposition. When we look at the story in Nehemiah, we find exactly the same. We find the devil bringing opposition. And he tries a number of different schemes to prevent the rebuilding of the city. And as we look at that, we can find the parallels in our world today. The devil tries loads of different disguises. And sometimes if one trick doesn't work, he tries something else. He switches to another form of hostility against the church. But just remember, it's not only you he's interested in. It's not just little old me. Okay? He wants to stop the whole city being built. But in as much as we're part of that, we can come under his attack. He'll try to stop the rebuilding program in any way he can. And he has a lot of weapons in his arsenal. It's just important that we, just for a moment, take time out to remember that our battle isn't against flesh and blood, 
but against spiritual forces who are actually opposed to God. And as such, we equally have weapons to fight back. But let's look at the weapons that were used in the time of Nehemiah. The first weapon the devil chose was mockery. They began to laugh. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it says, When it came about that Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and angry and mocked the Jews. What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish that in a day? Can they make those stones live again? And then, if you like, the clincher. Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and he said, even what they're building, if a fox should jump on it, it would break their stone wall down. You can read that first of all. And it sounds like almost indifference. But the Bible shows us what was behind it. It wasn't that they were actually indifferent to what was going on, because it says they were furious and angry. They were using mockery as a deliberate weapon. The devil is cunning. He knows our flesh. He knows how much we hate to be ridiculed. Do you know, I'll be honest. I can cope with people having a laugh at me. I can cope with humour. But ridicule, I find difficult. We naturally have something in us that wants to be honoured and respected. We want to be accepted, not laughed at. And you know, when you look at the church, there are loads of people who've left the battle because of the pain inflicted by mockery. I mean, there's a positive side to mockery. It certainly brings things to the surface if you hold secret pride in your heart. It certainly uncovers our hidden motivations. It is hurtful. And Sam Ballot wasn't alone. He poured out that scorn, it says, before his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria. They were being ridiculed by the in crowd of the day. And being ridiculed in that sort of way is hard to bear. Those who seem to have got their lives together use that weapon with devastating force. We often see it in the church when ladies with unconverted husbands have to endure mockery. Oh, you're not going to that silly church again with all those gullible people who need a crutch to lean on. And it's aimed at unsettling their faith. Teenagers have to put up with it from their unconverted friends. Don't you realise science has disproved Christianity? 
It sounds casual, but it can inflict deep and painful wounds. And we mustn't underestimate the effect of peer pressure. If we're going to triumph over this enemy, we have to face up to the fact that the gospel is foolishness to natural man. It says in 1 Corinthians 1, 21-25, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The Jews demand miraculous signs. The Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God stronger than man's strength. It's foolishness. What we preach to those who don't have the ears to hear it is foolishness. It makes you tempted to pray for more successful sportsmen or pop stars to become Christians so that at least we can have some of our pride back. You know, you could think, oh, at least we've got some well-known people on our side. But no, the Bible says the gospel is folly. It's foolishness. The natural man thinks it is nonsense that our hopes are built on Jesus who died on the cross in the Middle East over 2,000 years ago. It's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. But we have to remember it was nonsense to the Greeks in Paul's day. And he had to endure mockery. He endured it in Athens. He experienced sarcasm and scorn. And that's part of taking up our cross, following our beloved Lord Jesus. Because he endured mockery. He endured mockery to the very end. Ridicule isn't only used to attack the faith of individuals. In Nehemiah's day, it was used to oppose the total restoration program. They said, even if a fox ran up, the whole thing's just going to fall down. Can you imagine them laughing at that? And we find that in the 21st century. That attempts to restore the church get attacked. Huh. They call themselves a church. They don't have a proper clergy. <laughs> they don't even have their own building. <laughs> There's no scholarship amongst them. What serious theologian is part of them? Oh, it'll blow over in a couple of years. 
That's just some of the comments that have been made over the years. But that ridicule and scorn didn't stop Nehemiah. So his opponents had to move on to another approach. They had confidently predicted that nothing would go well, nothing would prosper. But it says that the walls got to half their height and that the people still had a mind to work. Jerusalem was beginning to take shape. It was beginning to have a look of something a little bit more permanent than they had first predicted. The whole project was taking off and there was growth and there was progress all around. So they moved to their second weapon. Compromise. If you look in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Then the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of our villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and can't come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message. And each time I gave them the same answer. Let's have a meeting. Let's talk about it. Hang on, you're going forward a little bit too quick and it looks like things might be working out for you. So let's get around the table and have a chat about this. But the context of the passage shows that their plan was to destroy the work of God. But it came under that guise. Let's talk about it. It's that weapon of compromise. When I look back when I was a young Christian, I went through a time where I'd been filled with the Spirit. I was still in the Methodist Church. Many of my friends, I don't know whether they were saved, let alone filled with the Spirit. And I remember spending a whole evening one night in my bedroom praying. And what was the attitude of my friends? You mustn't take this Holy Spirit thing too seriously. Have you heard it? Don't take it too seriously. Come on, it's okay to go to church on a Sunday, but keep things in proportion. That, that church of yours, it's not like other churches. It's so noisy. A bit hectic. Why, why do you take it so seriously? we get challenged like that particularly after God has done something special in our lives or we've been called to take some particular step of faith or commitment and they come with such reasonable arguments 
be careful. Are you sure you want to turn down that job offer? You've been waiting for something like that for years. And you deserve it. Think of what that decision will mean for your income. You know, if the devil can't laugh us out of court, what he does is he whispers, don't take it too seriously. And it's so persuasive. You can't give up all that. You would be so influential if you took that job. And in your spare time, you could still do something for the church. Come on, be reasonable. You might even come under the guise of, God wants you to be reasonable. He doesn't look for fanatics. And so that doubt is just set in our mind. Am I being fanatical? Am I being short-sighted? Am I throwing everything away? And the battle rages on as the devil tries to destroy the purpose of your life and the restoration of the church. You may have met people who say, why do you insist on speaking in tongues? Why do you have all that noisy worship? If you must have that charismatic meeting, why don't you do it in your own house and keep Sunday decent and in order? Can I just tell you something? It is not the Holy Spirit that brings division. The Holy Spirit is always loving and never brings division. But that type of reasoning can have a crippling effect. And over the years, we've seen young people leading churches. They have their salary, their home, their wife, their children at risk. Their whole security is bound up in what they're doing. And they're put under pressure to compromise what they believe. Even if you believe in your vision, is it worth the loss and the result of carrying forward? Where will we live? What will we do? How will we buy food? Well, maybe I could just compromise a little. Maybe we could just have a couple of songs on a Sunday and ask people not to raise their hands. Maybe there's a compromise where everyone is happy. I was part of a team of people who worked on something we called the Midlands Initiative in sort of 1995 onwards. And uh, it came out of a vision that Dave Devonish had, where he felt God saying that we should try to plant 50 churches across the Midlands in the five years before the turn of the millennia. And we did a number of things. We ran training days in the Midlands. We started talking to people who were in groups who were looking to plant churches. 
And also we had some established churches during that period come to us saying, we'd like to be part of what you're doing. But you know what? The people leading established churches found things far more difficult than where we established new church plants. One of them actually said to me, for too long I've tried leading from the middle. And you can't do it. He was trying not to be at the cutting edge because he knew he'd get criticism but bringing those behind him up. And he said, you can't do it. He'd been trying to keep everybody happy. But he found it really got to him and nearly destroyed him. And as we look at Nehemiah, we find he refused to compromise. He was gripped by that vision to see those walls erected. The Apostle Paul was driven in a similar way by a similar commitment. He saw himself as one called by God and entrusted with the gospel. And he made it his aim, and you can read in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, to speak as one not pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. He knew that at the end of time he would stand for his final examination before the throne of God. And you know, he was more concerned to please his God than to please the men he was talking to. There were times when he tried not to put a stumbling block in the way of others, but actually nothing would prevent his obedience to the vision God had put before him. And if we're going to fulfil our calling, and if we're going to fulfil the purpose of God in our generation, we need to overcome these weapons of mockery and compromise. The battle doesn't end there. And we'll see in future weeks other weapons that are used and thrown at Nehemiah. But actually, those two are quite enough for us to consider this morning. Are you facing mockery? Is there a call upon you to compromise? If so, are you going to go with it? Or are you going to hold fast to the vision that God has put in your heart and see the kingdom of Christ extended, his church be built, and his glory proclaimed amongst the nations? Shall we stand? If anyone's particularly fighting those battles at the moment, 
I'll just urge you to get some prayer in a minute from someone personally. But let's just come before God. Father, we so often think that our age is different. That we're facing something which is unusual. When people mock us, ridicule what we're trying to do. But actually, we know that this is something that's been going on against your plans for thousands of years. From the days of Nehemiah and before that. Father, I just want to say, write something on our hearts this morning that when we come under ridicule, when we get faced with compromise, that we will know your plan for our lives. That we will know what we should do. Lord, through your Holy Spirit, give us the strength and the tenacity to hold firm to your purposes. We ask this for the glory of your Son, that his name would be lifted high and known throughout the nations as your church becomes what you have destined it to be. Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit this morning. Give us strength. Give us a mind for the purpose. And give us wisdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. you enjoyed this podcast don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 